beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come to the epistle of the Corinthians, what Paul is doing is bringing correction to the people of God. Uh, There were many problems that were going on in the life of the church in Corinth, and that's what Paul is addressing. Uh, They had written to him, and he responded to them with these particular answers to the problems that were going on. And you find it chapter by chapter, Paul is bringing much correction, much needed correction, to the life of the church of, in, in Corinth, which means that all of the churches of God needed a correction. Probably none as bad as the, the work that was going on in the life of the Corinthian church, but nevertheless, we all need to be corrected. The correcting word of God continues to come to us, to teach us, to instruct us, to lead us in paths of righteousness for Jesus' name's sake. Paul told Timothy that the words that he gave to him were to teach them how they were to conduct themselves in the household of faith. And so we need to continually hear the teaching of God's word. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, Paul is instructing the the Corinthians regarding the past, uh, the ceremonies that went on in the Passover. And this is where we find a shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant in the administration of the bread and the wine, in the representation of what the Passover represented. So remember, type and shadow, symbols, ceremonies, all in the Old Covenant, looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, the reality which is found in Him. Once the reality has come, the scaffolding, as it were, is taken away. It's fallen down. It's, it's then dismantled. We no longer hold on to the scaffolding. And so this is the problem that many will have in the life of the church in Corinth. And even in our day and age, we can have the problem as well. Holding on to traditions. Why do we do it? Because we've always done it that way. And nobody understands why we do it, but we just hold on to it because traditionally that's what we have done. We always need to be asking the question, is what we're doing in line with the teaching of God's word? Not what is everybody else doing, but what do the scriptures teach? Because we are to worship God in no other way than what he has commanded of us in his word. And so, Paul begins to bring correction to the Corinthians with regard to the understanding of the Passover and then the Lord's Supper. As Jesus makes the transition, he is the one who announces the transition from the old to the new. Even as the writer to the Hebrews has done the same thing. Oftentimes when we read the scriptures, when it comes to the the end or a particular time text, um, we want to tend to think that it's it's us that's referring to us. The end of the world. And I'm going to tell you, most of the time when you read that, The end is not yet. It's not speaking of the end of the world. It's speaking of the end of the Jewish age. A transition from the old covenant types, shadows, and ceremonies into the reality of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So, Paul begins to give them instructions. And you notice in verse 17, he gives the instructions. He gives them a particular instruction and he doesn't praise them in giving them these instructions because of the fact that they were uh, beginning to confuse and to synthesize, as it were, 
two particular things. One, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and the other, the love feast that were a good thing with the fellowship of the church. So the love feasts were what like we would call our fellowship meals. And often they would end the love feast with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And the confusion came where they began to morph the one into the other. And so that's what Paul said. Some of you are hungry as people were eating all of the bread for the Lord's table. And others are drunk. That means others are drinking all the wine uh, from the table. And they are then not recognizing, not discerning the table of the Lord. The Lord's body. What it represents as we come to the table of the Lord. So this is the important thing. Now, traditionally... What the Jews would do with the Passover, when they would gather in the upper room, as Jesus did with his disciples, there were four wine cups that would be passed around. The first wine cup, the Lord would give thanks, and they would pass the wine cup around. And then after the drinking of the wine, there would be bitter herbs that were eaten, and some kind of a fruit sauce that would be eaten as well. And then they would sing a partial hymn, from the Hallel Psalms, 113 to 118. They would sing, right? And so this is the first portion of the meal, of the Passover. What was going on here? They were reenacting, as it were. They were recollecting what had gone on in the Passover. Then with the second cup that was passed around, there was then the eating of the lamb. There would be the breaking of the unleavened bread, passing that around, and the eating of the paschal lamb, the sacrificial lamb, even as the children in Israel did. And then again, they would go to singing a portion of the Hallel Psalms. Then the third cup would be passed around, and then they would sing a hymn. And this is where... Christ then uh, says, this is my body and this is my blood. After the third cup is passed. And then you have the same thing in the fourth cup as it was passed. And that they would sing and they would remember the coming kingdom of the Lord. So you had this going on. And what Jesus says in that third round, that this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Clearly, it was a a symbol. It was a sign of the work of Christ. It was not the sacrifice, but they were symbols that pointed to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he's got to instruct them that we are no longer celebrating the Passover. The Passover was a celebration of deliverance from Egypt, out of the iron furnace, as it was called that house of bondage and slavery, which was a type of the salvation that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, uh, being uh, those that are released from the bondage of Satan and sin. And that is only in Jesus Christ. It was not the types and the shadows. The true worshipers were looking to the coming Lamb of God, which was prophesied in Genesis 3. There would be one given who would crush the head of the serpent. So they were looking and anticipating the coming, looking forward uh, in their celebrations. We are those that believe upon the same promises, but looking backward to the fulfillment in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, type, shadow, symbol, ceremonies, although we can be instructed from them, 
we no longer hold to them because the reality has come in Jesus Christ. So, notice Paul in our text this morning. Verse 23. And, you know, little things will stand out. At least to me, they, they, they jump off the page. We can often read them and pass right on by and not think much of it. Think about this, what Paul says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Paul is saying that his teaching is not his own teaching. He didn't come up with this. This was given to him from the Lord. Christ is the one who delivered it. And what it means that he delivered it, he gave it right unto the Apostle Paul. Paul then took it unto himself. And this is what he taught. He taught the doctrine that Christ instructed him in. Beloved, this is the inspired Word of God. This means that our partaking of the Lord's Supper is an institution that is given by the Lord Himself. This is not for us to make up what we want to do and what seems best to us. There's enough of that foolishness that goes around in the life of the church. Paul says he received this from the Lord. You know, he does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. When he speaks about the resurrection from the dead and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says that I received this from the Lord. This is the direct revelation given to him by the Lord of the church. To despise this truth is to despise the Lord who bought the church. It's to despise the Lord who gave us his word. Beloved, you are never on safe ground when you begin to marginalize, when you begin to despise, to set aside the teaching of God's Word. You are never on safe ground when you begin to question what God says in His Word. It is ours to walk by faith, believing the promises of God. There are many things we don't understand. We continue to learn, to grow in the knowledge of the truth for better understanding. Let me say it as the canons of Dort say a richer season of grace, which means a greater understanding of something in God's Word. Often it's good when you're doing your Bible study, when you're reading, to write down things that you don't understand. Don't immediately go to, there must be a problem in God's Word. The problem, beloved, is always in us. It is not in Scripture. Write the things down so that it is, and it is answered in another portion of Scripture. As the Lord is His own interpreter. He makes it plain with His own word. Scripture interprets Scripture. This is where you're going to find the answers to your questions are in God's word. And it may be clearer in another place than it is in one particular area of Scripture. So, as I said, write it down and let the Holy Spirit do that work within you. This is delivered by the Lord. That the Lord Jesus, notice, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. The Lord gave these instructions to his church on the same night that he was betrayed. The same night that he was betrayed, he begins to tell his disciples about his work. What he is going to do. Even though he is going to be betrayed, he is going to redeem his people from their sins. He is demonstrating, He is communicating to them the wondrous work on the cross. And this is what He says. 
Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, isn't that important? Uh, thanks, Eucharisto. Uh, it's a thank offering. It's appropriate taking the Lord's Supper. It's appropriate when we receive the benefits of the Lord to be a thankful people, to give God thanks. Oftentimes, we're asked, are you thankful? And we'll say, well, not as thankful as we are. That is a given, beloved. It is a given. We are not as thankful. We are not as obedient. We are not as diligent as we ought to be. That is a given, right? We all understand that. That could be an axiom. It's a self-evident truth. Everybody knows it. Do you strive to be thankful um, do you strive to do it well? Do you even strive to do it well? Not that you're going to be perfect in this life, but are you striving to be a thankful person? To give God thanks? It's the unbeliever that doesn't give God thanks. That's Romans chapter 1. It's a mark of the believer that he is a thankful person. That he is giving God thanks. This is what Jesus does. He had given thanks. He broke the bread. The bread clearly is demonstrating, it's manifesting, it's a sign, it's a symbol of His body. Now, not one of His bones were broken. But when He talks about the bread being broken and how that relates to Christ, He was broken on the cross. He was broken on behalf of His people. When the wrath of God came upon Him, He was broken, He was bruised, He was battered. He was one who had His insides that were almost falling out. The body cavity was seen from being broken from the whips and from the cords, from the canine tails that came upon Him for us, for His people. Jesus said... <clears throat> My body, which is broken for you. Take eat. This is my body. Let me ask what you think about the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and I'm going to say there are at least two errors in the life of the church. Now, I'm not going to go where you may think I'm going to go. But the two errors that I see are on two opposite ends. One is lightly esteeming the Lord's Supper. If you lightly esteem the table of the Lord, you are in fact lightly esteeming the sacrifice of Christ to which this symbolizes. There is also the other error of what I will call uh, a hyper-exaggeration of the supper, which means you believe that the Lord's Supper saves you. Now, I see both in the life of the church. I see people who are diligent to be here whenever we have the Lord's Supper, but the other days uh, on the Lord's Day, eh, not so much. The other days of the Lord's Day, it just depends on your schedule, what you have planned. And you think you make up for it by coming and partaking of the Lord's Supper. I, I'm thinking, you think way too high of the Lord's Supper to the effect that you think there is salvation involved in partaking of the bread and the wine. This will not save you. This is for the saved. 
This is for the redeemed. Those regenerated. They come. They eat of the bread. They drink of the wine. But there are also those that esteem it lightly. So it doesn't matter if we have the Lord's Supper. If you've got something else planned, you do it. It's an error on both sides and both ends and both spectrums of the church. And maybe you have fallen into that. You need to repent of that. You need to repent of thinking that this brings salvation to you. And you need to repent of thinking that it's not important that I be here when we have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is important, beloved. The Lord Jesus gave us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And our faith is strengthened by partaking of the bread and the wine as the Spirit of God works on our soul through the administration of His Word. It's also an outward proclamation that we're believing in the promises of God. And so, Jesus said to take, eat. Here it is in the imperative mood. This is the mood of command. He uses the present tense, so that as often as you eat of it, you do so in remembrance of me. This is not an option for the believer. This is a command from our Lord as the Apostle Paul delivered it to the church, receiving it from Christ Himself. You are commanded as the people of God, the redeemed of Christ, to eat of the bread and drink of the wine in remembrance of Jesus Christ who gave Himself for you. Not an option. I think oftentimes that people think that the Lord's Supper is an option. If I feel like it, if I don't feel like it. I can be there, I cannot be there. It's not an option. This is the body that Jesus said is broken for you. You could see him in the upper room as was the custom of breaking the unleavened bread. And then passing it to his disciples and which would pass it around the table and representing the broken body of Christ on their behalf. And they were assimilating that bread within their bodies. Even as faith assimilated into the soul that we believe the promises of God. It's broken for you. Do this, again a commandment, in remembrance of me. What should you be thinking about when you come to the table of the Lord? There's so much triteness when we come to the table. Beloved, this is not a time that we gather around the table that you're looking at what everybody else is wearing. This is not a time that you come through and you do a rote type of memory. That this is just what you do. It's a casual thing. We always do it. We just come forward. That's what we've always done. It's not a time for you to be thinking about what am I going to have for lunch today. I hope he doesn't preach long because this can go on and you know what? The, the roast could be overcooked. It's not a time for you to think about these worldly things comes to sporting and the football game and you're thinking about that or looking at other people or, oh, they need that. We all need the teaching of God's Word. We all need to be instructed. We all need to repent. We all need to be a people that trust only in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. We do this in remembrance of Christ. What does it mean then to remember Jesus in the Lord's Supper? For the Hebrews, it was more than just a recalling of an event. As you could see in the upper room in the Passover, they wanted to try to reenact the whole of the Passover. Even as the children of Israel who received that in the book of Exodus. 
And they would want to do the same thing in commemoration of the children of Israel and the God who had redeemed them from the land of Egypt. So it is with the believer. To remember, in remembrance of Christ, is more than just thinking about, yeah, Jesus lived and died for me. Go to the text of Scripture. For instance, Matthew 26 and 27. And begin reflecting upon the person and work of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about Jesus, as it were, sweating great drops of blood. And think about Him doing that alone. He was doing that alone because his companions, Peter, James, and John, had fallen asleep in the garden because their eyes were heavy. And Jesus said, could you not watch with me one hour? There's something that God has given and virtuous of having companionship. Especially through the trials that we go through in life. So we began remembering. Jesus in prayer in prayer for His people, in prayer for His work which was coming, in prayer for the strength that He needed to endure the wrath of God, to endure the fact that He was going to be rejected, that He was going to be cast out. See, that's more than just a trite remembrance. It's deeper than that. It's almost like entering into the pain. I don't know what it's like to sweat Great drops of blood. And I don't think you know either. I don't think any of us even cumulatively have sweat drops of blood in prayer. You may have cried in prayer, but did the capillaries of your forehead burst so that blood was mingled with sweat while you prayed? How intense the prayer was. What must it have been like for Christ to be on the cross dying for a multitude which no man can number who were haters of God? What must it have been like for one to die for his enemies? Elect, no doubt, but still enemies of the cross of Christ. What must it have been like for the righteous Lamb of God who had no sin to be reckoned as if He had sinned all the sins of all of His people. To be accounted as the sin of the world. To be accounted as sin. He was made a curse for us. What would that have to be like? What would He experience to be made a curse? He was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, that's remembering the Lord's work on our behalf. Paul goes on and he says, in the same manner he also took the cup after supper. In the same manner. So it means he went through the same thing. He gave thanks to his heavenly Father. And he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Right here, beloved, we have a transition. The new covenant. This is not speaking about being delivered as the children of Israel out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, out of the slavery to the Pharaoh. 
That's not what it's speaking about. It's speaking about being delivered from Satan and sin and the wrath of God to come. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the new covenant. It doesn't focus on Israel of old. It focuses on me. Because I am the fulfillment of Israel of old. I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The blood of bulls and goats could not do it. I alone take away the sin of the world. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. There is one way, one truth, one life, and Jesus said, He is it. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. The blood of the new covenant. The focus, beloved, is always on Christ. We find the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this is what Jesus says, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, they all spoke about me. They had their focus upon me. Christ is the gem, the jewel, through the backdrop of all of Scripture. He's the one who shines forth. He is the one that we are to look to. This tells us that our salvation, our deliverance, is not our work. It's not our participation. It's what Christ has done on our behalf. And we enter into that work as He translates us from death and darkness to light and life in Himself. The blood of the new covenant. You see, up to this point, how has it been your remembrance of the Lord's Supper? Have you just gone through the motions? I know what it means to go through the motions. I was one who was a member of a congregation and I went through the rite of confirmation and I was an unbeliever. And I know what it means to take the Lord's Supper as one who was an unbeliever. I never thought once, I gave one, not one thought, one wit about what Christ did. It was just simply, you know, look at that person, look at that person, where am I going to get? I wonder where I'm going to kneel. Let me position myself so I can be close to this side over here or this side over there. Had nothing to do with the broken body and the shed blood of Christ to wash away all of my sins. You see, it was self-centered. It was about me. It wasn't about Him. It was about me. My preferences, what I liked, what I didn't like, never thought about the work of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's been you. Maybe you've done the same thing when you've come forward and you've taken the bread and the wine. Maybe you haven't given much remembrance about what Christ went through to redeem you from all of your sin and misery and guilt. Well, there's the correction, isn't it? That's the correction that comes to all of us right here and right now. Our minds are to be focused on the living Christ. That's our problem, is our minds aren't focused as they ought upon Christ. Let me ask you this. If your mind was focused on Christ, would you commit the sins you commit? When you get ready to lie... Because you're caught in a bind and you think, well, this is the way out of it. If you were thinking about Jesus, do you think you would tell that lie? If you were getting ready to mess around with internet pornography, do you think you would do that if you were thinking about Jesus at that moment? 
You see, apply that, beloved, to any area and aspect of your life, and you find out that's the problem, isn't it? So we're not thinking about Christ as we ought to think, and because we don't, sin and temptation come easy. Paul says, and these are the words of Jesus that gives as well, this do as often as you drink it. He's not given a number here. He doesn't say, and you don't find in Scripture, every Lord's Day, 52 times a year, you have to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a wondrous thing. It's a blessing for us as the people of God. Christ gave us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He instituted it. What he's saying is that as often as you do do it, I find in there some liberty. And I think the churches have liberty in this. If you were to look at the abstract of the RCUS, you would find there are some that take it 16 times a year. You will find there are some that take it 12 times a year. You will find there are some that take it six times a year. You will find that there are those that take it four times a year. I don't know any congregation that has it any less than four times a year. But there's liberty in that. And what it's saying in doing that is that each congregation, the consistories, are making that determination of how many times, how frequent we are to take the Lord's Supper. But as often as we do it, beloved, it's not about you and me. It's about Him. We do it in remembering His work on our behalf. Again, He says it, in remembrance of me. Try to make that the condition of when you come forward to the Lord's table that you begin thinking about the life and the death of Christ. That you begin thinking about Him sweating great drops of blood in the garden. That you begin thinking about Him being rejected by the Father. Forsaken by God on our behalf because of us. Because our sins imputed to Him. Think about that. Think about how lonely it must have been in the garden when all of His disciples forsook Him. Think about that. Reflect upon that. This is what we need when you come forward this morning. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you declare the Lord's death until He comes. You declare in eating of the bread and drinking of the wine that Christ broke His body for His church, for His people. This is an outward proclamation of the Gospel, as it were, by the corporate people of God. Christ gave Himself for us. And this is what we are declaring by eating of the bread and drinking of the wine. And therefore, He says, whoever eats his bread in this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. What would be an unworthy manner of approaching the Lord's table. Thinking too lightly of the Lord's Supper would be an unworthy manner. Thinking too highly of the Lord's Supper would be an unworthy manner. Blending the love feast with the Lord's Supper would be an unworthy manner. Coming and not asking for forgiveness. Coming and not recognizing that you have broken all the commandments of God. Notice... Notice what it says here. Whoever eats this bread and drinks or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. The the, the problem that we've had historically with this in an unworthy manner is we want to think that that is an adjective. 
It's not an adjective describing the status of the individual. It's an adverb. It's the manner in which you come, beloved. It's not speaking about the individual. It's how the individual approaches the table. Whether you come lightly, whether you come with such a high esteem that you think there's salvation in you eating the bread and, and drinking of the wine. Maybe you come unrepentant. Maybe you're living in a particular sin which you will not repent of. You're not to approach the holy table. That's an unworthy manner of how you partake of the bread and the wine. Maybe you have unforgiveness. I'm not talking about somebody who hasn't asked you for forgiveness, but maybe somebody has asked you for forgiveness and you won't forgive them. Now when you come and you eat, you you eat in an unworthy manner. We all know, right? We all know that of ourselves we are unworthy to approach the table. We don't come of ourselves, we come covered and clothed in Christ. So let's get that off the table already. We are not worthy to take of the bread and the wine. Christ makes us worthy. Christ calls us and commands us to come and eat. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is and what He has done. And so we come. But how do you eat, beloved? Do you eat in a worthy manner or an unworthy manner? Let a man examine himself. There is the examination of the heart right there. Are you believing the precious promises of the Lord? Are you believing that He lived and died in your place for you? In that before the living God, you stand covered in clothes in the perfect righteousness, holiness, and satisfaction of Jesus Christ as if you had no sin nor committed any sin, but yourself had fulfilled all the commandments of God. Are you believing that promise? That's an examination, isn't it? Don't buy into the nonsense that says that if there is any unconfessed sin, that's an impossibility. How would you know whether or not you had unconfessed sin? People have come up with that. That's the most stupid thing I've ever heard. Going through and trying to examine, did I confess? How many sins have you committed? I mean, you good night, you can't even remember where your keys are. How are you going to remember all that? Christ forgives us of all of our sins. The question is this, beloved, and you can examine yourself right now. And the, the Greek term krima means to examine, to test, to discern. You can examine and then eat of whether or not you're believing the promises of the gospel. If you're just going through motions, you know, I'm a member of the church, you know, I went through the rite of confirmation, I'm just coming forward because that's what we do. You better examine your heart whether or not you're believing the promises of God. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Notice the word judgment there in verse 29. Kata krimina. It's it's different from krima of examining or 
the, the judgment of the believer. One refers to the chastening that God gives. That's the chastening of the believer. That's why he said some among you are sick. And some of you sleep. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you ate too much and you curled up in the corner over there and took a nap. It's a euphemism that means death. That yeah, there are those that the Lord has killed because they, as believers, were unworthily coming and taking the, the bread and the, the cup of the, and the wine. They were unworthily approaching the table. They unworthily partook of the table of the Lord. They were believers, but they were chastened by the hand of God. The other one refers to the judgment that the Lord brings to the unbelieving world. Judge, examine yourself so that you're not judged as the world will be judged. One is chastisement, the other is condemnation. You look down to 32 and you see it right there. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Two different distinct Greek words. Condemnation, damnation. The other one, the chastening hand of the Lord. The Lord chastens His people. Beloved, do this in remembrance of Christ. Don't get up here and talk about the wine in your mind of how good it tastes. Don't talk about the bread. Don't talk about the chunks of bread. This one's too big. That one's too small. Why did that person get that big one? Why did I get this big one? Why did they get the small one? Why didn't I get the small one? Stop focusing on the trivial things. You're straining at gnats and swallowing camels with that. Focus upon Christ. This is the call of the believer. Keep your mind stayed upon Him. That's remembering Him in the supper. That is where you're going to have joy and where the Holy Spirit is going to work upon your soul. And this is going to be a secondary means of grace by which the Holy Spirit establishes your faith in a deeper measure. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Amen. Shall we pray?